Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. As the world continues to battle against the spread of coronavirus, testing remains one of the key ways to keep the infection under control. You cannot fight a fire blindfolded and we cannot stop this pandemic if we don't know who is infected. The WHO has been adamant from the beginning. The only way to fight this virus is to ramp up testing. We have a simple message for all countries. Test, test, test. But this has been met with many challenges along the way. In today's episode, we hear from Professor Peter Fraser. He is a professor of operations research at Cornell University in New York. He has devised a group testing protocol which, if adopted, would see 90% of Americans returning to work in just one month. But how does it work? So one of the big challenges with doing large-scale testing of people that don't have symptoms for COVID-19 is that the amount of capacity that we have for testing um, around the world is, is much smaller than the total number of people. If you could overcome that challenge, then uh, what would happen is that people who were infectious um, with the novel coronavirus, you would identify them quickly, you could then isolate them, and then they wouldn't infect other people. Uh, So the key is to be able to test a large fraction of the people um, regularly. So there are a couple of limitations that uh, that prevent us from doing that. Um, And one of the major limitations is the availability of a testing technology that's called PCR. And so the the way that PCR works is that you take a sample uh, from someone who you're trying to figure out if if they're infectious. Um, For example, you can take a cheek swab and then you bring it to a laboratory and you run this PCR test. And what it does is if there's in the, if there are viral particles in the saliva, then those viral particles are, are detected by this PCR. But PCR takes, you know, takes a special machine, uh, takes lab personnel, uh, takes some amount of time. So we can't run individual PCR tests on everybody every week. Uh, so what group testing does is um, where what you do is you take samples from multiple people and you combine them together uh, into one sample. So let's say that you have uh, 70 people. Instead of running an individual PCR test on each person, um, you you combine together saliva samples from multiple people and do one test on that pool. You then get an observation for whether that collection of people that you tested uh, had one person uh, or more uh, with the novel coronavirus. And then through these through the sequence of pool tests, you can figure out, um, you know, who is infectious. But group testing is not a new idea, is it? It's very old. So it was invented um, in the 1940s for testing. It, it was invented in the context of the U.S. Army, where they were interested in testing uh, soldiers for syphilis, uh, which is a blood test. So you know, you want to test a large number of people for syphilis and you can't run individual blood tests for each person. Uh, So someone named uh, Dorfman 
had the idea that you would you would do exactly this. So you would take samples of blood from all the soldiers, then you would combine together the blood from multiple soldiers, and you, you would do this this test on that pool of blood. So you do the test once, and then if it came back negative, uh, you would know, you know, assuming that there were no testing errors, you would know that nobody in that pool of, uh, that contributed to that pool of blood had syphilis. Under this protocol, how many people or households would be put into one test? Right, so in the, in the analysis that we did for population level screening for the United States, we looked at a group testing protocol where a collection of uh, 4,900 um, households would be grouped together into a single coordinated test. So the way that it would work would be that um, you could think about a big, a big square with room for 70 households on the you know, one axis of the square and room for 70 households on the other axis of the square where each, you know, each position within the square corresponds to, to the samples collected together from one household. And then you would create um, two times 70, 140 pools uh, from that collection of 4,900 samples, where each pool would be either a row, uh, a row of households from that square or a, uh, a column of households from that square. And then if, uh, if a household, if both its row and its column came back positive, then that would suggest that that household had uh, within it someone who was positive um, for SARS-CoV-2. And, and I should say also that this, this protocol is also not, this specific group testing protocol is also not a, not a new idea. It's called the square array protocol. So I'm a member of a household. Is the idea that I submit my sample and that goes into an overall submission from the entire household? Yes. Yeah, the, the, proposal, the proposal is that you would combine together samples from all members of, of a household into, into one sample, which would then be tested within this group testing protocol. That's done for a few reasons. Uh, one reason that that's done is that one challenge of testing for the novel coronavirus is that uh, there are what's called false negatives, where someone who is infectious, when you take, for example, a cheek swab um, or what's called a nasopharyngeal swab, which is, uh, which is less comfortable, one of the challenges is that when you take the swab in some fraction of people that are infectious with the disease, they test negative. Uh, one reason that that can happen is because even though you swab material uh, from a person, that material may fail to uh, contain virus particles or just may not contain very many of them. So by combining together swabs from multiple people in a household, you have fewer false negatives uh, because if I'm infectious, then that makes it more likely that people in my household uh, are going to be infectious. So, so it's a way that we, so it's a way that this particular protocol uh, deals with false negatives in spite of the constraints on how many tests we can do. Is this not somewhat counterintuitive? Don't people want to know whether they individually have the virus rather than whether the household has the virus? If we had more testing capacity, then we could test each person individually. But in a world where 
unfortunately, uh, you know, even combining together households into, into one sample already runs up against the limits of, of what we're able to do. I guess the way to, the way to think about it is that, um, unfortunately, we, we don't have the capacity to test everybody individually. Uh, so instead of positioning the choice as between being tested individually and being tested together, I, I would position the choice as um, being tested together or uh, not being able to safely uh, leave a social distancing order. What are the benefits of this type of testing versus antibody testing? Yeah, so the, they test for different things. So this, the, these, um, these PCR tests, both in a group testing framework and also uh, when you run them individually, they test for the presence of, of viral RNA, of material from the actual uh, novel coronavirus. And so th this is correlated with the presence of, a, of an active infection uh, that may be infectious for other individuals. There's still science that's going on in order to understand, you know, the, the progression of the disease and, and exactly at what points in time you're going to see positive tests from uh, positive test results from these um, from these PCR tests. But the big, you know, the, the primary difference between these uh, these PCR tests is they test for the virus, whereas what antibody testing does is it 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 tests for your body's response to the virus. So, you know, we have immune systems, um, healthy people have immune systems, and what the, what the antibody test does is it, it checks for antibodies which are produced by, uh, by your body in response to the, uh, to the virus. So because of that difference, this is intending to test whether you are infectious, you know, whether you can go and infect other people. And that's the primary thing that we want to know uh, when we decide to isolate somebody. The reason that we're isolating them uh, is because we are worried that they're going to infect other people. We don't want that to happen. When you test for antibodies, someone can come up positive for antibodies because they had an infection a month ago or you know two months ago and they're no longer infectious. They've completely recovered. It can be useful. You could certainly imagine there have been proposals where you would uh, test everyone for antibodies, and you could do that either individually or within a group testing framework. So there have been proposals where you would do large-scale antibody testing, and then someone who came back positive uh, would be deemed to be immune, and then that person would be able to not adhere to social distancing orders because you know it's believed that, that they can't be infected and they're not going to infect other people. And also you would need to do this kind of uh, regular PCR tests on such individuals because you would already believe uh, that they were immune and they couldn't be positive. One of the challenges with today's antibody tests is that it is twofold. So some of the antibody tests that have been developed have, have errors that may occur at a rate that is larger than you see in these PCR tests and also um, at a rate that uh, we don't currently know for all tests, so that's the first challenge. The second challenge, which is perhaps even a bigger challenge, is that we don't currently understand from a biological perspective whether the presence of a particular kind of antibody would confer, would, would indicate that someone was immune. So, you, you know, it's very possible today that uh, 
you, someone who comes back on a positive on an antibody test could go and be infected with coronavirus, uh, with a novel coronavirus tomorrow. So that's, that's, a that's a big challenge from a practical point of view because we don't want to say to someone, oh, it's now safe for you to go and, and interact uh, with people kind of in, in society at large when it turns out that actually it wasn't safe. So if your household gets a negative result, what then? Then you can continue about your day. You can go to work. You can, you know, go to a restaurant. Uh, if other, if, if, you know, society at large is interacting, is implementing these testing protocols, then the other people that you interact with uh, are going to be very unlikely to have coronavirus and, and it will be, it will be relatively safe. Then, um, some number of days later, uh, we would ask you to, to take another test and we continue to test uh, with the mind toward making sure that any, any, anyone that we missed in a previous round uh, that's infectious or anyone that, you know, for example, if there are travelers coming in from, from somewhere that's not in your city and they're coming to the city and they're bringing, uh, they're bringing infections with them, um, then that can create, you know, growth of an epidemic. So we're continuing to test uh, in order to make sure that that doesn't become a large problem. And how would people know I'm okay and I don't have the virus? This was not in my proposal, but uh, someone that I've been that I've been talking with is uh, Lawrence Kotlikoff, who uh, is uh, an economist at Boston University and is also very interested in, in group testing. Uh, his proposal is that people would would uh, be given bracelets, and that the bracelet uh, would be uh, green if you were known to be negative, and that uh, gradually over time the bracelet would be set up in such a way so that uh, it it would turn red. Um, one could also imagine a simpler uh, simpler scheme that wouldn't require bracelets that that changed colors, where just every week. So if we if we implement the testing every week, then every week there would be a differently, you know, a bracelet with a different marking on it. So when you tested negative, you'd be given a bracelet that that indicated that you were clear for that particular week, and then you would wear that, and then people would know um, uh, that they could interact with you. If put into place, it would be a voluntary system. Does it not need to be mandatory to work? So there are different ways to implement it. Um, you, in order for it to work, you do need that the people that you're interacting with, without social distancing, you need those people to have, uh, passed a test. So one way to achieve that would be with mandatory testing. Another way to achieve that would be, would be through this bracelet method where people would then need to be very vigilant and make sure that the the other people that they were interacting with had the bracelet that marked that they had uh, passed the test. the The first method is going to be more is going to be more reliable and relies less on vigilance of individual people. But obviously, uh, you know, there's a downside to mandating uh, mandating testing for people. You say this way of testing will work regardless of whether the prevalence rate across the country is uh, low or high. We ran numbers, so we ran calculations in order to in order to determine the sensitivity of both the testing capacity, the number of people that would be quarantined, and the number of people that would be infected 
varying the initial prevalence in the geographic region where you would apply it over a range of uh, over a range of prevalences. And we found that in indeed, you know, as you say, this particular protocol, uh, according to this analysis, will work over over a range of prevalences. If prevalence grows to be too high, you know, so if prevalence becomes eighty percent, then it's unlikely that uh, you know that you could um, release a large fraction of the people into the into the population. Um, uh, but over a range of prevalences that up to four percent prevalence, we tested. Uh, it's robust uh, in that regime. The US is currently running about 2 million tests a week. Is it realistic to think that this could go up to 6 million group PCR tests every week? I, th- I think it is, but it is a big, it is a big, uh, it is a big undertaking. Uh, it would require, you know, significantly expanding current capacity. In addition to PCR capacity, you would also need a very large effort uh, in collecting swabs from people. You would still need to you still need to collect a sample from each household every week. You would then uh, so just in terms of the number of people needed in order to travel around and collect all those swabs, it's a large number of people. In terms of the number of swabs, it's a large number of swabs. And in addition to to constraints on testing due to PCR, there are also Surprisingly, you might uh, you might be surprised to learn that there are also constraints on how many tests we can do just because of the number of swabs that are available and can be manufactured. Viral transport media, which is what you put the swab into when you bring it from the sample collection site to the laboratory, uh, and also transportation. The number of labs that are currently doing testing in the U.S. are are not that many, and they're geographically distributed. So if you're interested in doing testing in an area that's far away from one of those laboratories, you'd have to, you'd have to travel, uh, you'd have to take the, um, you'd have to take the sample from there to the lab. So it is a big effort. I don't want to underplay the magnitude of what would be required, but I think that we should, we should um, examine each of those components and then do what we can either to achieve 6 million tests per week, or at least to be able to enact this in some, you know, some collection of areas uh, where it would provide the most value, uh, where we could support it uh, with our current testing capacity. This is based on calculations, but your study didn't go beyond a four-week period. How do you think it would work over a longer period of time? Yeah, so that's work that we're currently doing. We're investigating, so, so I'm a professor at Cornell University, and we are interested in uh, first of all, reopening the campus in, in a couple of weeks for a larger number of, of personnel and also bringing s- students back on campus in the fall. And we're running uh, these calculations or similar calculations in order to understand what testing capacity would look like over the course of, over the, you know, over the course of several months uh, and until, you know, the students go home and even, you know, until the point in time when we're lucky enough to have a vaccine. Um, so in the protocol that I described for the United States, what we do is we take an initially high prevalence and we use testing and removal of, uh, of symptomatic, of infectious people from the population in order to drive prevalence down. At that point, prevalence, you know, after four weeks is quite low and 
we face a choice. So one would be that you continue doing large scale asymptomatic testing of people, uh, you know, in, in a manner similar to what, uh, what the proposal calls for over the first month. The other option would be that you would cease doing asymptomatic testing and move to doing contact tracing, uh, where you take people that are symptomatic and, uh, and trace their contacts. And then only if those symptomatic cases uh, started to rise, then at that point you could reinstate this regular asymptomatic uh, uh, testing. So that would be a choice that, you know, an individual, uh, you know, state or the federal government would need to make in terms of how they want to trade off, um, you know, doing, doing regular testing is safer, but also is, uh, is a larger burden. And so, you know, how, you, how do you want to trade that off? Are there any plans at the moment to trial this in a defined area? So we are, we are looking at doing this. Uh, within Cornell University, which is in uh, which is in Ithaca, New York, which is a small town uh, in upstate New York, uh, relatively far from New York City. So yeah, and and we're there are a great many details to be worked out. One detail that uh, that we're we're currently trying to figure out is how do you uh, get legal approval in order to be able to run these tests in this particular way at scale because every laboratory that does testing needs to, um, needs to get certification for each test that they run. Uh, so that's currently something that we're figuring out. Also, you know, scaling up, uh, just, you know, how do you actually combine the samples? We don't currently have robotics to be able to combine the samples in, in the way that we would need. So do we build robotic systems that would do this? Do we do it manually? How do we actually do the logistics of going out and um, getting samples from large numbers of students? How do we make sure that people stay apart when that we, that we don't create infections between people that are getting tested because they're all coming to a common site? So how do we make sure that they stay apart from each other? So yeah, so we're looking at all those details in order to, in order to pilot this. We'll watch the results with great interest. Peter, thanks very much. My thanks to Suzanne Brennan, who produced today's podcast, and thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back tomorrow.